to cultivate a movement of growing disciples who know Jesus, who live for Jesus, and who serve Jesus. And to focus this week upon Jesus, our model of disciple-making, gathering people into God's kingdom, and the Spirit's activity in the world today has been a great privilege and a pleasure. This morning, we want to talk about following the Apostles' vision. The Apostles' vision, the tipping point of mission. And I find this vision articulated at the end of Paul's primary missionary letter. We often think of this as a very theological kind of book, but it's a missionary letter letter that Paul wrote at the end of his third missionary journey. He had stayed in Ephesus on that third missionary journey, seemingly using a different strategy, but he was actually multiplying a strategy that he had developed in his movement building as he modelled himself on the life of Jesus. And he stayed in Ephesus for two, two and a half years. He didn't build an office. He didn't build a church building. There were no church buildings until the fourth century after the time of Jesus. There were no mission stations. That was not a model that Jesus fostered or the apostles fostered. But he rented a room uh, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which means the tyrant teacher. I'm not sure whether the kids called him that or whether the community called him that. And daily, and some early manuscripts would indicate during siesta hours, he met people who came into the city, no doubt to worship the uh, main god of Ephesus, Diana, Artemis, or perhaps to do trade in this banking, trading city of Ephesus, one of the main links between the, uh, the Silk Road to Asia and the road that passed the home of Jesus down into Africa, the road, this main road that travelled down past Nazareth, and it linked the Silk Road and the African trade route, routes with, with Europe, uh, shipping out of, out of Ephesus and Smyrna. And so people came to this, to this city, and Paul brought them to Jesus. He worked with a team of people who had been baptised with the Holy Spirit. You remember the story of Acts chapter 19. And he equipped them and they planted churches right across the province of Asia um, in uh, uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. Heard of those cities? Laodicea, as well as Colossae, Heriopolis, in the home of Nympha, in the home of Achippus. Believers were brought, were scattered after being equipped in Ephesus and sent out to multiply uh, the work of the kingdom of God and establish the kingdom of God across the Roman province of Asia. And after doing that work, Paul went down to Corinth for the three winter months of the year 56-57. And there in the cold with the snow on the mountains of Greece beyond the bay and with the islands stretching out towards the mainland of Italy and the Roman capital, Paul wrote his missionary letter, letter to the Romans. 
We reflected on this a little earlier in the week, so we're giving a little background to this. And at the end of this letter, Paul outlines uh, very clearly the vision that he and his fellow apostles had. I'd like you to notice this scripture. This is our scripture reading for today. Romans chapter 15. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves, these are believers in Rome that he has not met, although he knows many of them because they've come to the Lord around the Roman Empire, Gentiles who'd come to Jesus and they've gone back to the capital. He says, I myself am convinced, my brothers, my sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. One of the things we find about Paul as he, as he works, and I explore this in this little book called Following the Apostle's Vision, one of the things we, we notice is that very quickly he equipped new believers to be competent in sharing their faith because he many times was only around for a short period of time, spent one month in Philippi and planted two churches in that pagan city, complete churches. Three Sabbath days in Thessalonica and, and, and within six months he writes two letters to those mature believers who he says, you were worshippers of pagan idols six months ago and now you're followers of Jesus. So he, he, he worked very deeply. He worked to equip and to equip people to multiply, to share their faith in their environments and also to multiply their communities of faith. There was no sitting down and establishing a church. They were established churches within a very short frame of time. How is that possible? That's what I explore as I go through the epistle. I myself am convinced, my brothers, my sisters, that you in Rome, you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, competent to instruct one another. I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're justified through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and we're sanctified through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, not by our own works. And here Paul is writing of this. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Elicricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. You know where Elicricum is? From Jerusalem all around to Elicricum. If there's anyone here from the Adriatic, you'll know where Elicricum was. You see, Paul was modeling himself on Jesus. Have you ever stopped and realized that Jesus was a district worker? And during the course of his three, three and a half years, he opened up the work of the kingdom of God in Judea, the first one and a half years of his ministry. Then Samaria, he only needed to spend a short time there because he found a person of peace and she could share the faith there. So he only stayed a couple of days in Samaria and the work was on fire. Then he went to Galilee 
Then he reached across the other side into Decapolis and then he reached up into Galantis, what we call Golan Heights today. In the last months of his ministry, he spent time across in Perea. So he covered that whole territory and established the work of God in those districts, those areas of the Roman Empire. And think about the Apostle Paul. After his conversion in Damascus, he opened up Arabia. He wasn't sitting under a rock somewhere reflecting and meditating. Otherwise, why did the king of Petra chase him and try to kill him in Damascus and shut him up in Damascus? He was sharing his faith down there in Arabia, as well as reflecting under a rock somewhere and ridding his soul of, of prejudice against pagans and Gentiles. But he also opened up the work then in, in, in his home province of Cilicia, the hidden years of the Apostle Paul, where he spent about 10 years in Cilicia, sharing faith and planting churches. And then he came across to Antioch and worked with Barnabas in establishing faith in Syria. And then they went to Cyprus. And then they opened up southern Galatia. And then they opened up Pamphylia. And then they opened up Asia and then Macedonia and Greece. And Elytricum is on the Dalmatian coast of, of uh, the Adriatic coast. So it covers areas today of Albania, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Croatia, on the coastal area. So all the way from Jerusalem around to Elytricum, he had brought people to Jesus. He'd equipped them to share their faith. He had planted churches. He didn't stay around to do it all. He just equipped people because he knew that they would multiply. There was no idea of a church in one place in Bishopsdale that would sit and look after itself. That church would be responsible for the whole of the Canterbury leading people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, all the way around from Jerusalem to Elicricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has been my ambition to preach the, the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And then we come kind of to his, his vision statement. He says in verse 23, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through, and so have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Here was the vision of the apostles. The vision was that there be no place left where the story of Christ Jesus, the gospel story, there be no place left, there be no relational stream where the story of Jesus was not known and understood. No place left. I work with an evangelical organization called No Place Left and they have a vision of planting a church in every 1,000 population of the world. Even that, I say to them, is not the vision, not the complete vision that the apostles had. They had a vision of a church in every relational stream because they were not building church buildings. They were planting believers into every relational stream and letting that multiply as a movement out into those places. From where did this vision come? This vision came from two great historical realities. Two significant points in history. The first, Calvary. God became man, a little fetus, a babe, child, teenager. 
Hey, went through puberty. That's pretty messy. Teenagers, young adults, came to the Jordan. That was all preparation. Then the foundations were laid. Then he was equipping. Then he was equipping leaders. And he equipped the leaders with the invitation, come and see, follow me, fish with me, sacrifice with me. And that led him to the cross for you and for me. Cried out, it is finished. But that was not the end. Three days later, having broken the power of sin, he rose out of the grave with the power that was within himself, with the call of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Because you see, on the cross, the heart of the Trinity had been split apart. Now on Sunday morning, the Trinity cooperated. The historic truth that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose for you and for me. So that we might have eternal life. Our eternity depends upon that reality. But if it were not for Pentecost, you and I would not have the slightest interest in Calvary. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that which the Father had promised and that which he had spoken of was given. And the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came to gather believers of the body of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit came to anoint and empower believers to share the story of Jesus. This is the gospel. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit convicts us of that. Do you know that Jesus is alive? Yes, you have the historical evidence and you have all of the... And, and we need to look at that evidence and we need to talk that evidence and we need to be able to share that evidence. But you know that Jesus is alive because he lives by the Spirit with the Father in your heart. You know him. The world does not see him. But you know him. For he lives in you. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Imagine the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not afar, at a distance. He chooses to live in the body of believers, and he chooses to live in the believer. So in your community, in your office, in your workstation, at your university, in the mechanics workshop, on the building site, when you're playing sport, the triune God is in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. And when the early believers who were vacillating and some still doubting after Jesus had risen, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were possessed by this reality that Jesus had died, Jesus had risen. They were possessed by this reality and nothing could distract them from this reality. Jesus said, when this gospel of the kingdom has been preached in all the world, then shall the end come. Jesus said, now go, go to all the world and preach this good news to all creation. Jesus said, go, and as you're going, make disciples who understand that I'm alive in all ethnic, in all relational streams, in your family group, in your community group, in your sports group, in every relational stream. 
Evangelism is not conducting a series of public meetings for 14 days of the year. Evangelism is what we do as the disciples of Jesus, as the ministers of Jesus Christ. It's what we do as we live and share with our neighbours and our friends and our families. Go. And as you're going on the path of life, make disciples of all. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses of the resurrection, Jesus said. That's where, that's where the motivation, that's where the power came from. And the three angels' messages, hey, we get stuck on message number two and message number three, and we haven't even explained message number one, which is the basis of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6 to 13, to prepare people for the harvest. John says, I saw another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, we identify with the message of the three angels as Adventists. We say, these are our messages. Well, they're not actually ours. We identify with them, and we're to share them. And if I read these messages correctly in the context of Revelation, what it means is this. Adventists better be known as the people who love Jesus. When people think of Adventists, they should know, oh, those are those people who don't eat this and don't have, don't have cheese in their fridge or whatever. No, they should be thinking, those are the people who can't stop talking about Jesus. Because right at the heart of this three angels' message, or these three angels' message, right at the heart of this is the eternal gospel. That's what it's all about. Message number two has no sense at all if you don't understand your salvation is through Jesus Christ alone, what he accomplished for us on the cross. And by his... He is alive. This is the eternal good news. This is the message that we're to share. This vision, this vision of sharing this gospel was shaped by the transition stories of the book of Acts. I challenge you last night to stop one Sabbath afternoon or sometime soon and read through the book of Acts from beginning to end in one sitting. Because there you'll see the story of Jesus, the gospel, his death, burial, resurrection being shared under the power of the Holy Spirit. You see the activities of the Holy Spirit as this message is shared through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right in the heart of the book of Acts, Right in the heart of the book of Acts, there are four stories which we call the transition stories. Absolutely significant when it comes to understanding how the early believers moved on from being a Jewish-based movement to being a movement that would reach out to the Gentiles as well. First of all, we read in Acts chapter 8, on the day of Stephen's martyrdom a great persecution broke out against the church at jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered we don't have time to talk about why could the apostles stay in jerusalem when there was so much persecution you need to look at that that's really significant all except the apostles were scattered throughout judea and samaria godly men buried stephen and mourned deeply for him but saul began to destroy the church where was the church in going from house to house he dragged off men and 
women and put them in prison. Why do you drag off women? Because when you read the book of Acts, you'll see women were leaders of the church as well and equally with men. Hey, that's confronting. But you look at Jesus' ministry, the first one he shared with, I am he, the Messiah, was a woman and not a Jew. Samaritan. And when he called men to be apostles, he then had women traveling with him. That's confronting. That was totally countercultural. Women traveling with him. And he's training women as apostles as well as men. Gospel of Luke. A story of training for men, then a story of training for women. Then a story of training for men, and then a story of training for women. We call this the pairings of the Gospel of Luke. 30 times you have these pairings. Training men, training women to be apostles, sent ones to lead. And so here, Paul, Saul at this stage, he goes house to house, he drags off men and women to throw them into prison because he knows this movement is house-based. This movement is not based in the temple, they're being thrown out of there. This movement is based in the households or the oikos or the ethnic stream or the relational stream. And so they're scattered. Philip, he heads off to Samaria. Well, Saul's unlikely to chase him there. Because as far as good Jews were concerned, the Samaritans were half-bred pigs. And the Samaritans thought the same about Jews. It was kind of a shared animosity. Had a long history. And Philip shares the story of Jesus. And when he shares the story of Jesus who has risen... People believed him, and they were baptized in water. But then the message gets back to Jerusalem, and the believers in Jerusalem send out Peter and John, and they pray for these Samaritans believed in the same Messiah as the Jews and received the same Holy Spirit who came on Pentecost to confirm and to equip and to empower them to share faith. That's a confronting story, isn't it? What about the next one? The Spirit of God takes Philip down into the desert. Heard of the Gaza Strip? That's where it was, down on the road through Gaza to Egypt. And he catches up with a chariot. And on this chariot is an official from Ethiopia, probably more South Sudan, that sort of territory today. And... Uh, but crossing across to what is Ethiopia today as well. And, uh, and Philip runs after, and here's this fellow reading. Now, he's reading aloud, because in New Testament times, they didn't read silently, they read aloud. And he's reading Isaiah the prophet. Ever stopped and wondered, where did he get the scroll of Isaiah? They didn't have printed Bibles in those days. Who gave him, where did he buy He'd been to Jerusalem to worship, but have you ever stopped? He would not have been allowed to worship in Jerusalem because the Torah said no foreigner and no eunuch could come near the assembly of God's people. And so he would have gone to, I want to worship. So he goes to Jerusalem. And the moment he goes into a mikvah, a place of baptism, Jewish ceremonial cleansing, the men would have said, you're a eunuch, get out of here. 
and he would have been driven from the city. Maybe he looked from the Mount of Olives to see what's happening over there across the Kidron in the temple area. We think he may have done that because he took the culture of what he saw back into Ethiopia. And so it's not surprising today to find the Ethiopian Orthodox Church reflects what the Ethiopians saw when he looked over the wall from the Mount of Olives into the temple. Just the same. I've been to Addis Ababa, I've been through Ethiopia, and it is absolutely amazing. This man, he's reading Isaiah. What's he reading? Chapter 53. He's a eunuch. And he says, bruised and crushed? Ah, Philip, do you understand what you read? What's this about? Is this man who is writing, talking of himself, was he a eunuch like me, bruised and crushed? What's this about? And Philip begins at the same scripture, tells him about Jesus. Now, if you read that prophecy, Isaiah 53, 54, 55, 56, it's a story of the suffering servant, Messiah. Chapter 56, and through the crushing and the bruising of this suffering servant, all foreigners and all eunuchs shall be gathered into the household of God. And then I kind of need to tell you, just Jesus said, some eunuchs are made that way. And he said, some eunuchs are born that way. Hey, that's pretty confronting. In other words, into gender, into sex, in the category that we call gay. And the assembly of God's people is open to them. That's confronting, isn't it? That's confronting. And then the third story. This fellow who is calling so, causing so much pain, he's heading to Damascus, he's been to other cities, and on the way, Jesus meets him. He's been fighting Jesus. Jesus turns up and says, Saul, who are you persecuting? I am Jesus of Nazareth. Wow, you imagine that. The shock. This one that he is fighting against is alive. He is alive. And Saul was led blind into Damascus along the street called Straight, which was this street in Damascus. And Ananias came to him. Saul, Saul, what's holding you back? The Holy Spirit, I see, has come upon you. Arise and be baptized. And immediately Saul went to the synagogue and started to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, Samaritans could become believers and be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Ethiopian eunuchs, those sexually different, could become believers and be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Even their arch persecutor could become a believer and be baptized with the Holy Spirit, be welcomed into the family of God, be one of the key leaders in taking the gospel to the Gentile world. And then there was Cornelius. And our pastors and theologians, including Dr. John McVeigh in the United States, written fascinating articles in last year's ministry magazines. And he points, this is a tipping point of mission. Because here at Cornelius is an Italian, if you please, right from the heart of the Roman Empire. And Peter is called by the Spirit, by the angel. He's really hesitant. He goes to the home, travels two days, 
goes to the home, into the home of Cornelius at Caesarea Maritima on the coast, the capital, the main city where the governors, are, that's where Pontius Pilate lived, that's where Herod the king lived, that's where Paul was later in prison. This was the city, not Jerusalem, and he's called to the heart of the city. And you can tell when he goes into the home of Cornelius, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to be here because you're actually unclean, but I've come because he saw that the Spirit of God was already there. He saw that the angel of God was already there. So he goes into the house. He says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be here, but I'm here. This is a classic case of the Spirit of God on the basis of the story of Jesus totally shifting the early church, totally redefining Sometimes evangelical leaders ask me, Peter, what is your hermeneutic? What is your principle of interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies, etc.? Because we listen to your teaching in the Middle East and, and we see that it's somewhat different. And I say, my hermeneutic is Jesus. We cannot read the New Testament through the Old Testament. We must read the Old Testament through the story of Jesus. We don't interpret Revelation by Daniel. We interpret Daniel by Revelation. Jesus is the one who reinterprets life. He is the one who reinterprets. These transition stories demonstrate that God does not discriminate. That's why Paul could say, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ Jesus. Jesus died and rose for all. What Jesus did on the cross and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, God anoints all with his spirit. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. He anoints us all. One baptism. Baptism by water, baptism by the Holy Spirit, anointing into one body. There's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There are some today who would like to say there should be a male church and a female church. I want to tell you, my brothers and sisters, that if the Adventist church starts and begins to affirm male headship, we are no longer the Adventist church as a movement to finish God's work. We are no longer. We might be part of Christendom, but we're not a movement based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. If we go down the track of affirming male headship, we'd have to do away with Alan White. You'd have to do away. I, I just want to make that point. There is one body. All spirit-baptized people are to minister. What do you not know? That you are the dwelling place of the Spirit? Jesus is your saviour. The Spirit is the one who brings the presence of the Father and Jesus into every believer at the time of baptism by water, baptism by the Holy Spirit, and you are anointed and ordained for ministry. Here's a frame for 1st century and 21st century ministry. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching people. Christ's method alone. Now I know as a church, we will spend any amount of dollars, millions of dollars to avoid that if we can. We'll do anything. We want to do 
sharing faith and making disciples by proxy. We'll do it remotely, as long as we don't have to engage with people as Jesus did. But Christ's method alone, just share and view this little video. We're getting the sound through. Vona? we're going to keep going sorry it's a very simple story but really powerful tell powerfully tells the story yeah
What a classic statement. The chief method, Shemeli says, the chief method that we're following is to what? Visit our neighbours in their homes. Now that's pretty simple. Visit our neighbours in their homes. Connect with people. This week we talked about connecting with people. We looked at what Jesus taught. We saw that Jesus said, if you can eat, you can make disciples. Connect with people. Eat their food, listen to their stories, bring them healing, encouragement, share your story and introduce God's story. And perhaps introduce Discovery Bible Reading as a way to read through the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark so that people can actually experience. When the Holy Spirit is upon you, you receive power. You are empowered to connect. And so we want to be very practical this Sabbath. You've all received a copy of Pray for Five, Disciple One, Pray for Five. Have you received this little card? And uh, you're invited to make a list of people. Write down a list. We call it mapping today. So what I talk about in my book and what we do in our training, we, we think of five people um, and then we think of their relationships. So a neighbour, a person that we've made good connection with, family member who's not close to Jesus. And we write their names down and regularly in our family worship, in our personal worship, worship as couples, in our groups, in our churches, we put these names on the card, on the floor in front of us, on the chair, on the bed in front of us, and we pray by name for these people. I can't tell you how intercessory prayer works, but I know it works. I work with a group of seven older people who wanted to start a church in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and I said, I'm not going to come and run your leadership meetings. You can do that yourselves. I'm not going to come and visit you. You can visit each other. I'm not going to come and do your Bible reading with your neighbours. I'll teach you how to do that. But when you gather to pray for each other, I'll be happy to be with you. I wasn't sure that that was the easiest task because they became faithful prayers. And each week, at least once or twice, they would put their list of names and they'd pray for Jack, five different Jacks, and Jean, four different Jeans, and John, four different Johns. And we were on our knees because they were people who felt you had to kneel, not just sit like I feel you can do. You had to kneel on this hard floor and you'd pray for all of these people. Do you know that little group? It was, it was not a contemporary church. It was not with it and connecting as we might say in some ways but that little group led on average nine to ten people to Jesus each year that I was their pastor I didn't preach I, I mean I said I'm not going to preach in your church all the time you can organize that I preach two or three times a year my job was to equip and facilitate and I want to encourage you to make a commitment 
to follow Jesus. What he says and what the Spirit challenges us with is pretty confronting. But I want you to participate with him as a disciple maker, anointed by the Spirit of God. So I'm not going to make an appeal. I've done that as a public evangelist in many places. You know, I could ask you all to come down the front here. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you to turn to each other and perhaps beside each other if you feel comfortable, otherwise you just pray. I don't want to make you uncomfortable because this is a big group. If you feel comfortable, just pray for the person beside you. You don't have to, right? But pray especially for the fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. You might like to place your hand on the shoulder of the person beside you if that person is comfortable with you doing that. That's New Testament. You know, it's kind of a symbol of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So in our commitment, as a result of our study of the life of Jesus and our journey through uh, the story of the Spirit this week, I want you to pray with each other. Is that okay? But I don't want to make people uncomfortable, and if you've not prayed in a group before, that's okay. Just one person with one person. But if you're going to pray with the person beside you, just ask, are you comfortable? And if you're not, you just say no. And then one could pray, or you can both sit there and just reflect. Let's pray for a couple of moments, just two by two. <laughs>